Tonight I'd like to share a message with you that I've chosen to call Cries from the Cross. We know that the last words that a person says right before they die are often the most important, the most meaningful, the most memorable words of their life. This is frequently portrayed in the classic deathbed scenes in multiple books and movies where someone in the final moments of their life musters up just enough breath to say one last thing to those that they love. Their loved ones hold them in their arms as they fight for their life and they strain to make out what they're trying to say. And in many cases, those final words are unforgettable and they leave a a lasting impression on the lives of those that they leave behind. We refer to these often as famous last words, phrases which are attributed to people who are close to death that maybe are wise, humorous, disturbing, inspirational, or memorable. For example, Julius Caesar, before being stabbed to death by his trusted friend, he said, A2, Brutus? Nathan Hale, the U.S revolutionary, before being hanged for spying on the British, said, quote, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. George Gipp, for those of you sports fans out there, the standout Notre Dame football player who got pneumonia at the height of his college career, on his deathbed told his coach, Newt Rockney, someday, when things look real tough for Notre Dame, ask the boys to go out there and win one for the Gipper. John Sedgwick, who was a Yankee general in the Civil War, as he was standing up while everyone else was ducking behind rocks to avoid Confederate sharpshooters, said they couldn't hit an elephant at this. Yeah, you got it. He... That was the last thing he said. Karl Marx, when asked on his deathbed if he had any last words, simply said, Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. W.C. Fields, famous comedian, lifetime agnostic, was discovered reading a Bible on his deathbed, and he said, quote, I'm looking for a loophole. And then Conrad Hilton, founder of the famous hotel chain, asked if he had any last words of wisdom for the world, and he simply said, quote, leave the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. I guess that's the thing you think about on your deathbed if you're a hotel chain owner. Well, these famous last words obviously pale in significance compared to the final words of Jesus Christ. No dying words are more important, more meaningful, more memorable than the words that Jesus spoke while he was dying on the cross. We all know that death on a cross or crucifixion as we refer to it today is the most torturous form of death ever devised by mankind. It was purposely designed to cause a excruciating, slow, painful death. A person was laid on two pieces of rough wood, which were fastened together to form a cross. Nails were driven through their wrists, um, and also their feet were fastened to uh, the, the, the cross by a nail. Um, they were hoisted up. On this cross, it was dropped in a hole. 
and the weight of the body made breathing painful and next to impossible. The only way to catch your breath was to push your body up with your legs, which resulted in, in excruciating pain in your feet. This agonizing ordeal continued until the victim was exhausted and eventually they suffocated to death. That usually lasted two or three days. If the executioners wanted to speed up the process, they would simply break the person's leg so they could no longer push up, push themselves up to breathe and they would suffocate much faster. Well, during those six hours that Jesus hung on the cross, fighting for his every breath, he uttered seven simple, profound statements. These seven statements, or cries, as we're calling them tonight, were intended to leave a lasting impression on those who, 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 who he loved. He, he didn't want the, them to forget what he said on the cross. And so tonight I thought it would be good for us just to take a brief look at each of these seven sayings or cries of our Lord Jesus Christ so we might have a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation for the great sacrifice that he made for us. Now, I assume most of you are familiar with these seven sayings from the cross. Throughout church history, uh, these sayings have served as a popular topic for many sermon series and, and, and even books. Uh, men like Spurgeon, uh, A.W. Pink, John Stott, even in our modern day, Erwin Lutzer, Warren Wearsby, have written books, have preached whole series on the seven sayings of the cross. Well, tonight we're just going to consolidate down into a short time in God's Word to prepare us for our time in communion. But listen to what A.W. Pink said in his book titled, The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. He said this, quote, the words which fell from Jesus' lips while he hung upon the cross reveal the excellencies of the one who suffered there. They wrap up the gospel of salvation and inform us of the purpose, the meaning, the sufferings, and the sufficiency of the divine death. Erwin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, said this in his book, Cries from the Cross, and I totally ripped off his title, so giving credit to where credit's due so I don't get accused of, uh, what's that called? Plagiarism, yeah, thank you. Okay, so I'm giving him credit where I got this title tonight, but his book was called Cries from the Cross, and this is what he said, surely there can be no last words as significant as those of Jesus on the cross. As we turn our attention to his cries, we stand on holy ground. Here we see his final act of selfless suffering that should make us exclaim, behold how he loves us. That was what the music team just sang for us. No greater love than Christ's love for us on the cross. Well, none of the four Gospels alone include all seven saints. But harmonizing the crucifixion accounts in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reveals that Jesus made seven statements while he hung dying on the cross. And each of these statements reveals a different aspect of the salvation that God has provided us through the substitutionary death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so let's look at these, these seven cries from the cross. The first cry was a cry of compassion. 
a cry of compassion. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin here and we're going to jump around to uh, back and forth between uh, John and Mark and even Matthew. And so in Luke chapter 23, verse 33, we read this. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. But look back at verse 34. This was his first cry from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. The first thing that Jesus said after he had been nailed to the cross and hoisted up for all to see, expressed his incredible love and compassion for sinful mankind. Nowhere was man's sin manifest more than at the foot of the cross. You have the Roman soldiers obviously crucifying him, but also sacrilegiously gambling for his clothes, mocking him. You've got the Jewish religious leaders joining in the fray, taunting him to save himself and to prove that he really was the Son of God. The the crowds were morbidly entertained by his death. This was the, the thing to go watch right? They didn't go to the movies in those days. Let's go watch the crucifixion. And yet, in spite of all the the sin and wickedness that was going on around Jesus, his heart was filled with compassion for everyone who played a part in his death, and he asked God to forgive them all. Now, this was, I'm sure, shocking to those who were in his hearing when he said this, because the majority of criminals who were crucified were angry. They were defiant. They would yell curses and insults while hanging on the cross. And yet this was totally different. Jesus was filled with peace and love. He had no resentment. There was no anger. There was no desire for revenge. I mean, he could have condemned them. He could have rebuked them. He could have even destroyed them. He could have called, right, what, 10,000 angels, myriads of angels to come uh, rescue him or, or call fire down from heaven to, to torch them all. But he didn't do that. He simply interceded for them. He prayed for them. And he was following his own, exa- his own uh, advice that he had given his disciples to love your, who? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44. He was also fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that we already read earlier this this evening, that the suffering servant would intercede for the transgressors. In the words of J.C. Ryle, the greatest of all high priests was interceding for his torturers. Why? Because he knew, Jesus knew that they were acting in total ignorance. They were spiritually blind. They didn't didn't recognize him for who he really was. And neither the Jews nor the Romans were aware of the full ramifications of their wickedness. They They had no clue what they were doing. 
And so consequently, Jesus requested that God be gracious and merciful to them and not hold this sin against them. And ultimately, I think he was praying for their salvation, that God would grant them repentance and faith in him. And I would submit to you that the conversion of those 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, remember that, in Jerusalem? Uh, I think that was a, a partial answer to Christ's prayer. Jesus had prayed for those very people that stood around the cross, that crucified him, and Peter was used by God, that first sermon that Peter preached there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, to bring those who were actually guilty of murdering Jesus. They were brought under great conviction for the awfulness of what they had done. And if you remember, they, they asked Peter, what, 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 what can we do? To make things right. And what did he say? He said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, acknowledge your sin, turn away from it, and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Acknowledge him for who he is. And this is just, again, a reminder for us tonight that through Christ's death on the cross in our place, we're provided with complete forgiveness for our sins when we acknowledge our sin and when we acknowledge him as the one who took the penalty for our sin to save us. And so we see, first of all, this this cry of compassion, a cry of compassion. Secondly, we see here a cry of salvation, a cry of salvation. Look at verse 39. We'll just continue here in the Gospel of Luke. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Again, he's just joining in with the rest. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus... Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, and here's the second cry from the cross, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today you shall be with me in paradise. And so the second thing that Jesus uttered from the cross was directed toward one of the two thieves that was crucified on his right or left. One of them, as we just read, was blaspheming him while the other sought to defend Christ's innocence and and, and their guilt. The latter one humbly admitted his sin and that he deserved to die. We, We deserve what we're getting here. He also acknowledged that Jesus was who he said he was. He said, Jesus, remember when you come into your kingdom, in other words, he was acknowledging him that he was a king. He was the king of the Jews. It, it, what, what was written over his cross above his head was true. He was a king, and he did have a kingdom. And so Jesus was moved by this man's humble desire to turn his life over to him, to, to turn away from his sin and to place his faith and hope in him alone for his salvation. And as a result, Jesus assured him that he would take him that very day to be with him in heaven. Paradise, that that word is only used a couple times, two other times, in fact, and and, uh, in the scriptures, and both times it refers to heaven. And we've talked about this in the past, but I 
I can't help but point out the thief on the cross is such an example for so many things, is he not? I mean, for example, this, this, this man never got baptized. He never went to church. He never received communion. He never did any act of service for Christ, nor did he give money to the cause of Christ. And so all that to say, his testimony provides undeniable proof that salvation is not by anything we do. It's not by works, but by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. I mean, when that guy got to heaven, it was like, hey, how'd you get here? Well, I was hanging on a cross and, and uh, I acknowledged my sin and I acknowledged that Jesus was, was, was the Lord and Savior and, and I asked him if he would take me to heaven with him and he did. I, I, I'm, look, at I mean, I'm here. This thief knew he didn't deserve salvation, and, and he also knew there was nothing he could do to earn it. Now, lest you think, well, sweet, well, I'm going to just bug out of here and go to dinner because I don't have to be here, if this has nothing to do with whether or not I'm saved, right? Well, at the same time, I think the thief on the cross is, is, is the best example in the scriptures that a person is saved by faith alone, yes, but faith that saves is never alone. That's a statement that was made popular in the Reformation, that a person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. In other words, the genuineness of a person's faith is demonstrated by how they live their life after they get saved. And so this guy only had a few hours to demonstrate repentance or, 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 or fruit in keeping with repentance. And so what do we see? He feared God. He said that. Don't you fear God? He admitted his sin. He acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior. He placed his hope for forgiveness and eternal life solely in Christ. So there was a lot of fruit this guy produced in, in just a, a few hours there before his death. And so Jesus assured him that he would graciously reward his repentant faith by bringing him to heaven with him when he died. And so again, this is a good reminder for us tonight that through Christ's death on the cross in our place, we are promised eternal life in heaven if we do what this thief on the cross did. We humbly admit our sin and we place our faith alone in Christ's work on the cross in our place, rather than trying to earn our salvation through our own effort, our own good works. And so there was a cry of compassion, a cry of salvation, and then thirdly, a cry of affection, a cry of affection. And now we need to turn to the Gospel of John, John 19, and this will be more familiar to us because we just finished going through the Gospel of John together as a church on Sunday morning, so these the uh, next few statements will be fresh on our minds, I hope. But notice John 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. 
And so in this third statement from the cross, Jesus expressed his undying love and affection for his mother. And his heart went out to her as as she struggled with her own pain as, as she watched her son die. And you'll remember 30 years earlier, Simeon, the prophet, held that baby, baby Jesus, in his arms when they brought him to the temple to be dedicated, and he prophesied in Mary's hearing that her child would one day be like a sword that would pierce her soul. And this was the moment that he was prophesying about. And yet in the final moments of of his life, Jesus wanted to make sure that Mary would be well cared for after his death. He was the firstborn. That made him the breadwinner of the family, the one who was most responsible for his widowed mother. He, He didn't pass on that responsibility to his brothers because at this point, they didn't believe in him, and apparently they weren't even at, there at the cross. And so, so he turned to his beloved disciple, John, the disciple whom he loved, and trusted, and he entrusted his mother Mary to his care. And I think this is so beautiful because in the midst of his own intense physical pain and mental anguish, Jesus was thinking of his mother. Even in his moment of greatest need, Jesus was preoccupied with the needs of others. And again, this is a good reminder for us that through Christ's death on the cross, in our place, we are encouraged that as followers of Christ, no matter how bad things are going in your life, we should always seek to love and to serve others and consider them more important than ourselves. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, 45? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit or pride, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. Don't just merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And he said, have this same attitude or the same mind of who? Christ. And he exemplified that principle of humble service of others, putting yourself second when he was hanging on the cross. And so we see a cry of affection. And then fourthly, we see a cry of separation, a cry of separation. And now we need to go over to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, this is probably the statement that is most familiar to all of us, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, it says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, the man is calling for Elijah. Well, we know he wasn't calling for Elijah. This was an expression of what certainly was the most searing pain that Christ felt during his entire time on the cross. That is when he experienced the separation from God for which we were eternally destined. 
We were the ones who were to be separated from God. And He endured that separation for us. And, and obviously, this is a mystery here, what we're reading this, and, and, and we think we understand it when we are really just scratching the surface because never before in all eternity and never again will the deep, intimate relationship between God the Father and the Son ever be broken. This was the first and only time. And for a moment in time, the, the Trinity was torn. The eternal unity between the Father and the Son was severed. I'm sorry, I can't explain it beyond that. (laughs) That's just an amazing mystery. It's beyond our comprehension. But God literally abandoned His one and only Son. Even as we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 53, that it pleased God to, what, remember? To crush His own Son. As one poet so eloquently put it, this was Emmanuel's orphan cry. This was the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was was an orphan at that moment. He was an orphan. God had orphaned him. He'd been rejected, if you will, by his father. And this was a, a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. Where the psalmist says exactly that. Why have you forsaken me? And this is, again, rich in theology here as we understand that on the cross, Christ serves as a substitute for sinners. What do we mean by that? Well, he didn't become a sinner. He was as holy as he ever was, but God treated him like a sinner. God viewed him as if he were guilty of all the sins committed by all who would repent and believe, even though he never committed a single sin. And so God poured out his wrath on him as the sin bearer. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteous of God in him. As one commentator said, God treated Christ as if he committed believer's sins, and he treated believers as if they did the righteous deeds of the sinless Son of God. That's an amazing exchange. And so, again, we're reminded in that statement, why have you forsaken me, that through Christ's death on the cross in our place, we are no longer separated. We will never have to experience that destitution. We will never be rejected by the Lord. We are declared righteous in God's eyes. He treats us as if we lived Christ's perfect life. A cry of separation. And then fifthly, we see a cry of affliction. A cry of affliction. And we need to jump back to the Gospel of John again. John 19, verse 28. And this is what they mean when they talk about a harmony of the Gospels. There's actually books that are written that kind of sync all this stuff together because it's, sometimes you flip back and forth and it's hard to get the timeline. It's easy to, 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 to miss the timeline or um, to, to kind of see it all laid out the way it happened. And so this is what we're doing. We're trying to harmonize the Gospels and the account of Christ's crucifixion. But notice John 19, verse 28. 
John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. This fifth cry is the shortest. It's the simplest. I thirst is essentially what he said. It was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 69.21 that alluded to the fact that Jesus would be given vinegar to drink to deaden his pain on the cross, which we know that he rejected. He turned away. He didn't, he didn't want any, uh, any kind of uh, deadening of the pain. He took the, the full pain of the cross. And again, I think this is a good reminder when he said, I thirst. It's just a reminder of the humanity of Christ. That he, while he was fully God, he was also fully man. He was just like us and that he felt hunger and, and thirst and pain and fatigue and temptation. He knew what it was like to, to feel sad, to feel lonely, to feel lost, to feel tired, to feel weak, to feel betrayed, to feel misunderstood, to feel like quitting, to feel scared. He knew what that felt like. That's the essence of what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The writer goes on in chapter 4, verse 15, to say this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin... Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, what a beautiful reminder here that through Christ's death on the cross in our place, we are encouraged by the fact that we have a merciful and faithful high priest in heaven who is tempted in every way that we are and has suffered in every way that we do. And so knowing that he can empathize, he can sympathize with us, he's been there, done that, if you will, and, and then intercede for us in our affliction and temptation, we're, we're emboldened to approach him for mercy and grace to help us in times of need. It's hard to go to somebody, right, when you're maybe struggling with something that you don't think can relate to you. Well, they're not going to get it. They've never been through what I've been through. But then you find that person that you share that with, and they go, oh, yeah, I get that. I've been there, done that. Let me tell you my story. And you're just like, wow, I thought I was the only one. And then you realize no temptation is overtaking you, but that which is common to man. And the same thing, here, we're emboldened. It's like, hey, he gets it. He understands better than anybody. Because he was a man like us yet without sin. Well, there in the same context of John 19, we have the sixth cry from the cross, and we could call this a cry of liberation, a cry of liberation. This is the statement that we took some extra time on when we went through the Gospel of John. Verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... What? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Now, the other Gospels mention that Jesus cried out just before he died, but only John tells us what he actually said. Usually, a a crucified person at this point wouldn't have the strength to cry out, but to simply moan. But it says that he cried out in a loud voice. He had the strength to, 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 to scream, if you will, to yell. And this was, this was not a cry of, of defeat, but this was a cry of victory. He had just won the greatest victory ever in the history of mankind. By perfectly obeying his Father and willingly surrendering his life on a cross, Jesus conquered the barrier of sin and death and hell that separated God and man. And that's why it says when he was on the cross, what happened in the temple, you remember? The veil that covered or or divided the the temple from where everybody, everybody else could go and then the Holy of Holies, that nobody could go behind that curtain except for the high priest once a year, to make atonement for the nation's sin, that veil was torn from the top down to the bottom. And that was an expression. That was God's way of saying, guess what? You have access to my presence now because of Christ's death. It is finished. This was his way of saying the entire work of redemption had been accomplished. And had been completed. Sinners are now liberated from sin, death, and hell. He'd finished the task for which he had been sent. He had provided a way for sinners to be freed from the fear of death. We know in the Greek that word is tetelestai, right? We talked about that. Um, that word tetelestai was found written on ancient papyrus receipts, meaning paid in full. Paul hinted at this word picture in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. He said, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The ancient imagery there that I think Paul was referring to was in those days when you were on death row, if you will, that you had been assigned to be executed, uh, your crime would be written out and put on your door of your cell. And when they came to execute you, they would take you and they would take your, your note or your certificate and they would actually nail that on your cross. That's why Jesus had a sign on his cross that said he's the king of the Jews. That's his crime, claiming to be king of the Jews. And so it's as if Jesus came into that row, that death row, and he went down and he grabbed all the certificates of all of our sin, and he went out and he put them on his cross, and they were canceled. And so, again, as we think about tonight, the death of Christ in our place, we're convinced that our sin is paid in full, and as a result, we have been liberated from death and hell. We will never have to experience that because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Well, finally, there was one last thing that Christ said before he died, and again, we need to go back to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and here we 
hear the cry of expectation. A cry of expectation. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole earth until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, there it is, he still had the strength to proclaim, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This last saying corresponded to the prayer that Jewish mothers in that day taught their children to pray before they go to sleep. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It was an expression of total trust. I'm I'm going to sleep now and I'm, I'm trusting you now to watch over me, to sustain me, and to wake me up tomorrow morning. It comes from Psalm 31, verse 5. You can tell it's a quote from the Old Testament there. And this is where David put his future in the hands of God with absolute certainty that God would act in his favor. And so in essence, Jesus threw himself into the arms of the Father and he was absolutely convinced that his future was secure in the promises of God. He fully expected that God would raise him from the dead and exalt him back to his glorious position. It was this hope of glory to come that gave him the strength to suffer and to persevere to the very end. And whenever Jesus mentioned his sufferings, he he always mentioned the glory to follow. He didn't ever just talk about his death. He always talked about his death and what? Resurrection. Like two sides of the same coin. Another thing I think this is important to note here is that Jesus' life was not taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up. We know he said that actually in in John. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I mean, this was not natural for someone to die after only six hours. It, it, again, I mentioned earlier, it usually took a few, a few days. And even though the soldiers wanted to, to speed things up by breaking their legs, you remember they came to Jesus and they noticed, they recognized he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. They just took the spear and stuck it in his side. Not only was that to fulfill prophecy, that none of his bones would be broken, but it was also to show that he was perfectly in control of his life and his death. It wasn't the soldiers, it wasn't the religious leaders, it wasn't Pilate. No one took his life from him, he voluntarily laid it down. And again, this is just a helpful reminder to us tonight that through Christ's death on the cross in our place, we are comforted by God's sovereign care and control of our lives. We can surrender our lives, if you will, to his control and entrust ourselves to his loving care because we know that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, sovereignly reigns over all things. I wasn't sure whether to call this a, a cry of um, 
expectation or, or maybe just a cry of submission. And sometimes that's what we just have to do. We just have to submit our lives to the Lord. Father, into, into your hands I commit my life. Into, into your hands I commit my situation. Into your hands I commit my spouse. Into your hands I commit my wayward child. Into your hands I commit my health. It's, it's an act of surrender, of submission. Trusting that God is sovereign over all these things. And we know in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it says about Christ that God, after dying on the cross, Jesus, or God, after his son died on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is reigning in heaven right now. And the question is for us tonight is have we bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and confessed him as the Lord of our life? Have you? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from yourself, saved from sin, saved from death, saved from hell, saved from God's wrath. And once we confess and believe and are saved, we then have the great privilege of doing what that last song that was sung to us said, that we have the privilege of carrying his name, carrying this great message of the cross to those who desperately need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege tonight that we've had to to carry this message of the cross to exalt the name of Jesus in this place for the great sacrifice that he made for us. Lord, these statements are rich, they're deep, they're beyond human comprehension. We've just really skimmed the surface of these statements and they really deserve a sermon. Each one deserves a sermon of, it, of its own, but I pray tonight just the weightiness of all of them combined together would just uh, thrill our hearts and again uh, amaze us and humble us as we consider what amazing love, what a, what a great love that you have shown to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.